You're listening to a sermon preached at Sojourn East. The great theologian Augustine of Hippo once said that in the Old Testament, the new is concealed. In the new, the old is revealed. When we think of the messianic prophecies from this perspective, we see that the Old Testament whispers to us about the coming of the Messiah. Join us during our Advent sermon series titled Rumors of the Messiah, where we confirm the whispered prophecies of the Old Testament that told of the birth, suffering, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Our scripture this morning comes from Genesis 3.15 and also from Romans 5, 6 through 8. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. You see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Now, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Soldier family, good morning. It is a, uh, a pleasure to open up God's word to you guys this morning and be in the house of the Lord. Hope you guys all have a great Thanksgiving. Uh, our family had a great Thanksgiving. And one thing that I said and reflected on was uh, just how thankful I am for you guys as brothers and sisters and co-laborers in the faith. Um, God has indeed given me a good gift and you guys uh, as brothers and sisters. So I definitely appreciate that. Uh, as Brother Scott has mentioned, we're walking through uh, just a four-week series of just rumors of the Messiah, tracking through the Old Testament and seeing just the glimmers of hope, the, the, the breadcrumbs that God has left of a pursuing Messiah, someone who will come and someone who will restore the things that were lost and the things that were broken. Uh, if you've tracked with us the last few weeks, we just came out of our, 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 our sacred series in Genesis, walking through Genesis 1 and 2, and just being able to see and observe what was, what was God's plan? Uh, what was his hope in creation and how we see that all things that he created, it, it was good, it was succinct, and it was, it, it was sufficient. And part of our text uh, this morning is going to pick up exactly where we left off in Genesis chapter 2. But before we dive in, would you guys just join me in a word of prayer? <clears throat> gracious, fa- gracious Father, we thank you that um, we have uh, the luxury to, to, to worship openly that we can come here in this place, in this space, uh, and exalt your son, Christ Jesus. Lord, there are many brothers and sisters um, who do not have that opportunity, but the opposite. And Lord, as we exalt your name, uh, may we remember that you are a God who loves us, and Lord, it is you who made the first move. If you didn't move, we would have never moved towards you. So I pray that you will open up our minds and our hearts to behold this wonder and truth. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So I'm gonna tag my text this morning, the pursuing love of God. That's the hitter we're gonna walk through. You know, forgiveness is a a pretty interesting concept if you ever take a moment to sit back and just think about it. You see, the one that's giving forgiveness costs that person a tremendous amount. And a person who was receiving it doesn't typically cost them, but it has the power to release them, has the power to set them free. And normally the bigger the offense, the more difficult it becomes to forgive. And we know this in our personal lives. I know this in my own personal experience. You know, 
one of your friends pronounce crayons as crowns, you can, you can forgive that. You can, you, you can let go of that reproach. Um, maybe your, your, your neighbor leaves up their Christmas lights all year around. That's hard. That's hard. It's hard to, it's hard to be close, but you can let that go. Um, you know, if you somehow think that University of Kentucky is a better institution than University of Louisville, uh, that's hard. But I think I can muster up the power and the grace to let that go. Um, and even though these are, these are, these are, these are smaller instances, um, the question becomes, what happens when we're wounded personally and we're wounded deeply? Where does the, the strength and the source come to overlook that offense and to forgive it. Well, back in 2006, there was a recently promoted narcotics officer. His name was Officer Andrew Collins. And also there's another man, his name was Jamil McGee. And back in 2006, these two men will cross paths and their lives will go unchanged uh, after that. You see, Officer Collins was a up-and-coming narcotics agency. He was rising pretty quickly through the ranks uh, in just his prosecution, uh, just percentage of victories and putting drug offenders uh, behind bars. Well, Officer Collins and Jamil's cross, uh, paths crossed when uh, Officer, Officer Collins worked on some bad intel and lied, and he framed Mr. Jamil that led to a 10-year prison drug conviction. Jamil was innocent, but Officer Collins took the stand to testify against him in federal court. So he was sentenced to 10, 10 years in prison, and all Jamil could think about those 10 years was revenge, was to get his hands on the cop that put him behind bars um, and to seek retribution as a result of that. Well, as time will have it, the lies and the cover-ups and the deception of Officer Collins finally caught up to him. You know, he was found out that he was lying and being deceitful in his police report, doctoring reports in such a way to lead to convictions that when that finally became exposed, it led to him serving a 36-month uh, stint in prison. I think he probably served about half of that. Well, while both of their lives were unraveling simultaneously, God was subtly at work in both their hearts, Officer Collins and also Mr. Jamil. You know, while Jamil was in prison, getting many fights and pretty much practicing for the day that he's going to see Officer Collins face to face. One day in prison, he was kind of tired and fed up and, you know, he picked up something, picked up a Bible, picked up a Bible, started to open it. You know, when you're in prison, you got a lot of time, started to read it, started to go through it. Uh, it's something he encountered that he wasn't expecting. It was the love of God. You know, through God's word, he encountered his sin before God and his need of forgiveness and redemption. And I started to change it from the inside out. That, that anger, that, 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 that remorse, that hatred that he had toward Officer Collins started to slowly get melted away when he saw truly who he was in the sight of God. His fate will have it. Both men get released and they cross paths about a year after uh, they're let out of incarceration. Uh, Jamil sees uh, the former officer Collins in the park and he walks up to him, flood of emotion rises up and he's like, I'm gonna, gonna get him, gonna get after him. Walks up to Officer Collins and he sticks his hand out, he shakes his hand. He's hurt, he's mad, he's angry in it, but he recounts this in his book. 
he says, in the midst of it, he heard the voice of God saying, let it go. Let it go. These two brothers, sorry, these two men have now become brothers. They're both walking with the Lord. And an interesting part, thing about their story uh, is they travel together, they minister together, and they speak together of the wonderful mercy of God towards sinners. And they asked Jamil, you know, you should be mad at this man. He, he, he stole three years of your life. Jamil can easily recognize, well, if God didn't do what he'd done, I would have been in punishment forever. So it's the mercy in Jamil's life that allowed him to extend that to Officer Collins. And that's hard. This morning, what I want to do is kind of track with you guys and think and walk through uh, what does God's heart look like towards rebels, towards sinners? What is his, what is his posture towards sinners? What, is his, what, is, what does he mean when he says the serpent will crush your head and you will bruise his heel? How is that, how is that good news? What does that mean for you? And what does that mean for ourselves? And as we track through this morning, I want to keep that, that proclamation of God as our theme and walk through underneath three different hitters. And the hitters we'll walk through is the need for that promise, the hope of that promise, and lastly, the fulfillment of that promise. The hope, sorry, the need, the hope, and the fulfillment. Now, in order for us to, to, to grasp and begin to unpack Genesis 3.15, we need to do a little bit of time tracking through Genesis 3 to see what has led up to this point where God makes this declaration promise See, if you were here during our sacred service, our sacred series, as I, as I mentioned, <clears throat> we left off on Adam and Eve. They are one with one another, and they are in perfect fellowship with God. There is nothing good that Adam and Eve lack within themselves, with one another, with God, or his good creation. All things are good. The opening verses in chapter 3, they introduce you and I to a new character in this scene. This character is known as a serpent. Serpent is created, uh, but he's also noted as a crafty beast of the field. Somehow this serpent has the ability to speak, but his voice is the native tongue of a lie. The serpent isn't there to shoot the breeze and have a casual conversation with Eve. It's not saying, hey, Eve, what do you prefer in this garden? You like dandelions or do you like daffodils? No, he is bent on her destruction. He is bent on her demise. See, the serpent knows is that if Eve's faith and her trust in God fails, disobedience will soon follow. You know, if you want to understand the elusiveness of sin and the power of temptation for yourselves or people that you guys are with, start in Genesis 3. Start there and dive in and see what does it look like when temptation hits our hearts See, the serpent is attacking the very word and the very command of God. You know, God commanded them not to eat of a particular tree because they will die. You know, serpent uses, the serpent uses it as a launch point to attack and to pursue Eve. And he starts to question her about God's word and what, she is, and what he has said. Eve first recounted her first rebuttal is, yeah, we can eat of any fruit of the tree, but not that one lest we die. Eve is starting off strong. She's remembering the command that God has given her, but the serpent's not satisfied. He presses on. Look with me in verses four and verse five. 
You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Eve, you can be like God. The problem was they were already like God. If you remember from the previous chapters, they were already created in the very image of God. The serpent was not. Adam and Eve bared God nature. They were already in paradise. They didn't lack anything. Every need that they could possibly think of, they had it underneath God's provision. They had it all. Eve, at this thought, I think her, one of her struggles and my struggle and our struggles as well is when that thought was planted, she didn't take it before the Lord. She didn't seek counsel. She didn't have a conversation with Adam. She let it sit there and it festered and that thought began to grow. Temptation is, 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 is planted and that seed is there and that fruit that has always been there in the garden, now it seems irresistible, seems tasty, seems delightful. You see that tree that's been off limit and now, and now beams with a new hope and it beams with a new promise that this thing, Eve, can deliver what you really want. This can truly fulfill and satisfy you. You see, she was told that she can be like her creator, not the creature. She could be exalted and she could be the arbiter of what is truth and what is best for her. Eve, you don't need God to make that decision for you. You could do it yourself. That thought, it germinates and it takes place. And I want to walk you through how Eve is rationalizing this promise in her head. Look with me in verse six. It says, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. You see this forbidden fruit, she's now looking at it with new eyes and she's rationalizing what it must be like to take part in it. She says the tree was, was good for food. I can imagine Eve thinking there and saying, well, it's not, it's not poisonous. It won't kill me. It's a fruit just like any other fruit. Text says that it was, it was pleasing to the eye. It, it had a new glimmer. It had a new shine to it. Eve may have thought, certainly, something can't look this good and be bad for me, right? Lastly, she saw that it was desirable for gaining wisdom. Eve saw that this fruit, this fruit can do something for me. This fruit can provide what I'm looking for. Serpent is crafty, and his words are slick and subtle. And it seems plausible. You see Eve's rationalization. I don't think that she was some type of cave woman. Think of yourself being in her predicament in this situation. You see, sin is blinding, and it, it, always, it always feels right. That's, the, that's part of the illusion of it. It always feels right in a moment, but it always leads in pain, more pain than you ever could have perceived. You see, it is when the goodness of God is dimmed in our view that the allure and the brightness of sin shines the brightest by Satan calling in God's nature to character and what he's keeping from her. 
that seem delicious? And when you think of it, you're like, it's, it's, it's a fruit. What's the big deal? It's not that they kill one another. They didn't hit one. They didn't cuss each other out. It's a, it's a fruit. Well, it's what the fruit represented in this situation. You see, eating from this tree was much bigger, and it was always bigger than a piece of fruit. It was about devotion. You see, eating of this fruit, they were exchanging their loyalty and their allegiance from a good God who has created them and wants what's best to them to a stranger, to a serpent who has not created them, who has been created in and of himself and who wants their demise. It was a subtle way this serpent was getting them to bow down and to worship him. And in that moment, God's image bearers would be changed just like that. They are broken and they are distorted. They no longer function the way that they were created to. Their conscience has been aroused within them and their guilt is ever before them. When their eyes are open, it's not the same way that they were promised. Their eyes, they are definitely open, but they are able to see their guilt and their shame before the holy God that they have transgressed, transgressed against. The first thing they seek to do is to, 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 cover, to cover their nakedness. Uh, they no longer fear pure in the sight of one another. They are, they are hiding the most intimate things about themselves. They no longer feel that they can be who they were created to be <clears throat> in the presence of one another. So what do they do? They grab fig leaves and they seek to cover themselves. Not only that, they hide from God. What does sin lead us to do? To cover ourselves and to hide they, they hid behind trees. Who do you think created the trees? God created the trees. But no matter what, their nature is, their new nature is leading them to hide from God. So the question is, how does God respond? What does he do? Does he destroy them as would have been adequate per his command in 2.17? He doesn't. God responds by moving towards Adam and Eve. He moved towards his sinful image bearer, and he's seeking after them. Why? Because with sin, they would have never turned towards God. They were unable to, and they were unwilling. They were scared. And if God didn't pursue them in that garden, they would have hid a long time behind those bushes. God in his love wasn't done with his creation, even though his creation has fallen. God is seeking after them to lead them to confession. When God asks a question, what is this you have done? God isn't literally asking, Adam, tell me. He knows what has been done, but he is seeking for them to expose that. Because of their sinful nature, they can't even do that. They shift blame ultimately. They even blame God as part of it. They point fingers at one another. Humanity it's been crushed and it's been, it's been deformed and it's been, it's been marred from the very beginning after this sin. The peace and the shalom that they had with God and in the garden, it's gone. The promise of the land bearing good fruit in abundance, it's now gone. Work would be hard. Relationships with heart would be hard that relationship and that unity that they have with God would never be the same. They're banished. That moves us to our second point, <clears throat> the hope of the promise. 
but we all feel this pain since the fall of creation. You know, our longings and our, and our groanings internally of what life should be like. We know that this isn't right. Even some of my friends who are not believers, they recognize this world doesn't operate the way it should. Their conclusion would be different, but they say, hey, some, something's wrong, something's broken. You know, in this season, uh, companies, they thrive in their business. They produce new shiny things and they, they, they distract and they offer promises of like, you know, if you just have this, you will, you'll be happy. Shiny things are cool. I'm getting my kids some Christmas gifts. I'm thinking I'm a bad father. But I understand like these things, they don't have the ability to reach down deep enough at the deepest aches and the deepest yearnings that we have. They distract, but they can never fully do what we needed to do. And the question I throw out to you guys is how have you and your family been impacted by the fall of creation? What does thorns and thistles look like in your lives? How has that impacted you? What do you feel? Is there, is there, is there an addiction that you feel that you could just never shake loose, that it has too tight of a grip? Is there a sickness in your family or in your own personal life that you feel is never going to go away, that you're just stuck with? Maybe you've been dealt an unfair hand in life. Your lot didn't turn out exactly the way that you imagined it to be. Perhaps you are dealing with a cloud of depression and it takes everything that you got inside of you just to show up here on Sunday, let alone on Monday to put your clothes on and to go to work. It's hard. Maybe it's a pain that you've experienced that you wish you could go back in time to change it. Maybe that's the pain that you're experiencing from the fall. You know, I preached two funerals this year and I've been around a lot of pain and I, and I, and I, and I feel that, that ache and I feel that, that yearning when I, when I sit with families. Think about the yearning and the aches in my own life and, you know, my broken and my distorted family. It hurts and I know that this isn't the way things should be. This isn't what God created and had in store for us. And brothers and sisters, I'm here to tell you as your brother and as a pastor, God is not indifferent to your pain. He's not indifferent to your brokenness. He's not indifferent to your sorrow. My brothers and sisters here from Afghanistan, God sees your persecution. God sees what you're dealing with and he sees what you're going through. And he loves you and he's there in a the midst and he's caring for you. But this isn't how things will always be. God said he will bring final judgment upon this serpent for its role in deceiving and leading the world into sin. And that brings us back to the passage that Brother Scott read for us in Genesis 3.15. Look with me again at the last part of 3.15. So God says, he says to the serpent, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. You know, scholars recognize this passage as the proto-evangelion. Proto means first, evangelion is declaration of the gospel. You know who was the first person to announce good news? It was God. In the midst of God being uh, uh, sinned against, his creation turning his back to him and to worshiping a, a serpent, not only does he seek after his creation that's hiding from him, he declares that he will deliver the final blow to this serpent. It was God's plan, and God will see it to its final fulfillment. You see, this, this seed, this, this, this descendant of the woman, she would deliver this final death blow to the serpent. 
but this descendant would also be wounded in the process. You see, God is, God is patient with his plans. He's not slow, but he's patient. And what he has declared will come to pass. See, the serpent will not have the last word. God's mercy will not allow us to be rebellion, broken, and lost people forever. But there's even another slimmer of hope in this scene. So not only does God pursue his creation that has rebelled and has hid, not only does he announce the good news of the Satan's final defeat, he offers more good news to Adam and Eve. So even though they were banished from God's presence because of their sin, God doesn't leave them to themselves. God will send them away with more adequate covering than the fig leaves than they thought of to cover themselves with. And let's unpack just this thought. You know, Eugene Merrill in his Old Testament commentary, I think he beautifully states it. He writes, It is also to be remarked that the clothing which God provided was in itself different from what man had thought of. Adam took leaves from an inanimate, unfilling tree. God deprived the animal of life that the shame of his creatures may be relieved. Adam had the right thought that his guilt needed to be covered, but he had the wrong means. God had to do something here. That moves us to our last point, the fulfillment of the promise. We see that it was, it was, it was God's very own son that was a promised seed, and we see that the identity of the serpent was Satan himself once we reach the New Testament. What I want to do is look at that Romans passage together. We'll look at verse, uh, Romans 5, verse 6, and we want to see what does God's love look like? What does God's love look like on display that pursues sinners like me, sinners like you? Romans 5, 6 says this. It says, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the who? For the ungodly. You see, this section of Roman, Paul is exploring the nature of justification, how it is that a sinful person, sinner through and through, can be declared justified, that is, counted righteous and not guilty before a holy God. How is that even, how is that even possible? So he moves his argumentation from how that's possible, looking at Abraham's life through faith, and he pivots to a more concrete section and a more concrete demonstration. He says justification is possible, but let me bring you a little bit closer to show you the cost, to show you what that looked like. And it's beautiful. It was God's pursuing love that moved him towards us. The question I have for you guys is, you know, if, if you are a believer in Jesus, how would you have identified yourself before coming to Christ? Would you just, would you say you were a pretty good person? Would you say you were not perfect, but not great? Would you ever say that you were ungodly? Well, you were, and I was, despite what our lives look like. Being apart from God means that we are ungodly in his sight, but it is exactly those that he moves towards. And when Paul says that we were powerless, um, he's referring to powerless in, your, in and of yourself, your own inability to make yourself right before God, your own inability to justify yourself. 
So even in your most righteous acts, the most, um, whether it's Sunday school or, 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 or children's church or serving or community groups, all good things that I advocate for. But if you slip and you think that I'm holding up my end of the bargain, that's why God has accepted me and that's why God continues to love me, you've missed it. You're trying to justify yourself. You see, God doesn't, doesn't look for righteous and worthy people to invite to his kingdom. You know why? They don't exist. There are no righteous and worthy people that God says, you know what, I think this person, he or she would make my kingdom look better. Here's my son, come on in. There are no such people. We don't decide to run towards God. Adam and Eve didn't make the first move they hid. Why would we be any different? God's the one who runs towards us. You know, in this season, I always make fun of my wife. She loves the, the cheesy Christmas movies on Netflix and Hallmark. Anybody watch those cheesy movies? A little bit of confession in here. She's pointing at her mom. My mom does. Uh, but, you know, a, a lot of the plot's the same. You know, something happens in the beginning. Um, the relationship doesn't happen. People move away, whatever the case, they, they, they split. And towards the very end, they come to their senses and they're like, I'll be, I, I'm, I'm better off being together than we are apart. So they, they run and it's like a slow motion embrace with their hands open and they, they embrace one another at the end and it's just this big cheer. And if we're not careful, we're like, we could easily think, yeah, that's, that's how I come to God. That ain't you. That was, that was not you. Spiritually speaking, you want to know what you were like? You were in an unmarked grave without a tombstone, buried somewhere. God and his righteousness and his royalty came looking, searching, digging, getting his hands dirty to bring you up and to breathe life into your limbs. Do you have that picture of yourself? You didn't magically hear the gospel and being, oh man, that's, that's a pretty good news. I should probably follow Jesus. God breathed life into you, gave you a new nature and a new eyes to see the truth. You we slip and we are in danger when we think that we move towards God. We diminish his grace and we diminish his cost. You did not come with arms wide open. Your arms were folded, your toe with a toe tag and you were underneath the ground. And God says, I want that person. That's what his love looks like. But I'm not done. Let's move on. Let's look at verses seven through eight. He says, <clears throat> very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. How, Paul, how does God demonstrate his love for us? While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. <clears throat> God is trying, I'm sorry, Paul is trying to position <clears throat> the love of God in, in a human tangible means. He says, on, on one hand over here, you have, a, uh, you have a, a righteous person, a devout, a pious man. Over here in the same section, you have a, a, a upright citizen. He said, yeah, somebody, you know, they might, they might dare to die for those people, even though it's not too likely. He says, yeah, even though that's a possibility, that's not what God's lo love looks like. God's love doesn't look for people that may be worthy of that. God's love is on the opposite end of the spectrum. God's love is for prostitutes, sinners, those wrecked, those broken, those who realize and recognize who they are internally is far from God. 
There is no human category that you could put the love of God in. And you have to, I want you guys to be able to wrestle with that and hold that and to be able to grip that as well. That's the starkness. Wasn't that you were you or me were, were, were loving or were desirable? God that saw dead people as he did in the garden. He says, I'm coming for you. He says, I'm coming for you. You know, one of the main hesitations that I hear when I'm sharing the gospel with somebody, I lay out the grace of God, what he has done in Christ Jesus. Uh, and I ask them, what's your thoughts of putting your faith in Jesus now? And they look at me often and they say, that sounds good, Mo, the love and the grace, um, but you don't know my story. You don't know what I've done. You don't know what has been done to me. God couldn't possibly love this. I mean, my own family don't love me. And you're telling me this supreme being loves me? Maybe, maybe when I get my life in order, I'll come to church. Maybe when I, when I stop doing some of these things, I'll, I'll, I'll start to, to come and pursue. I'll, I'll, I'll present myself presentable enough to God that maybe he will love me. My family didn't love me when I was a mess. Therefore, God won't love me when I'm a mess. How do you know God will love me, Mo? Because his word tells me so. Because his word tells me so. And it's beautiful. <clears throat> you know, God loving his pursuit. He, he was undoing what was lost in a garden. And Paul picks up his emphasis a few verses after what we just read. In verses 18 through 19, he pins the two Adams, our first Adam and the second Adam being Jesus. This is what he writes. He says, consequently, just as one trespass resulted in the condemnation for all people, so also one act, one act of, um, sorry, uh, so also one righteous act resulted in a justification and life for all people. Verse 19 reads, For just as through the disobedience of the one man, referring to Adam, the many were made sinners, all descendants of Adam are born into sin, born over a spiritual graveyard. That is you and that is I. But so also through the obedience of the one man, Jesus, the many will be made righteous. How is it sinners through and through can be made righteous. It's because God love pursued us. And in Christ Jesus, his righteousness, his perfect record, his perfect obedience to the Father that no one was ever able to partake in, he's given that to us as a gift. As a gift. You know, Tim Keller summarizes this news of the gospel in a statement that he mentioned in the past. He says, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dare to believe. Yet, at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Do you know that? Are you able to wrestle and to hold on to the, truth, the two truths that who you once were was an ungodly person, but in Christ Jesus, you are loved, you are accepted, you are beloved. Not begrudgingly, God didn't cross his hands, oh, I guess I'll throw my lifeline. In love, he moved towards Adam and Eve. To love, he moved towards you and I. And in love, he continues to pursue after sinner. You know, God fulfilled his promise to us in crushing the head of the serpent. <clears throat> you know, Colossians 2.15 is, uh, is a visual is illustration of Christ's public defeat of Satan. You know, when, when, when Paul's referring to the public cross, he's saying he made a, uh, a spectacle and he defeated Satan and his forces as well. The question is, one of the questions is, how does the, 
How's a cross which led to Jesus' death, which doesn't look like victory? How is it that that provides victory? And that's the, uh, that's, that's the crushing blow. Well, one of Satan's primary, uh, primary acts is to accuse you before God. He's a slanderer to accuse you before the Father. What Scripture is saying is that those charges, they were legitimate and they were on your back, but God pursued you and in love brought you to the Son, and he takes those charges off of you and he nails it to the cross. So what accusation can Satan launch against God's elect? None. His charges don't stick. He's powerless. It's like a poisonous snake with his fangs defanged or his fangs taken out. May look scary, may still move around, but he's powerless to deliver fatal blows. Accusations don't stick to you anymore. Christ has taken those. You know, if you're here and you're listening, maybe you don't know Jesus. Maybe you don't have a relationship with him. The question I will hold and pose out to you is, do you know the gift that God has offered you? Do you know the redemption of being made whole, being delivered from sin and the pains of death? Do you know God offers that to you? God doesn't leave you a treasure map and say, hey, figure it out, connect the dots. God says, no, I've paid that debt. It's here, my child. There's a seat with your name on it at my table. Come and eat. And if you have questions about that, I don't know everybody who's here, but if you have questions or thoughts about that, I would love to talk to you, get somebody to talk to you as well. I don't want you to leave here thinking that you have to be someone and do someone in order to receive God's love. It's done. You're invited to the table. Maybe you're here and you're a believer. In this season, what would it look like for you to sit and to take time to think. This season's very busy. It's not going to get less busy. I get that. What would it like for you to sit down and to remember God's goodness, his mercy, and his kindness towards you? Do you remember that? Do you remember that you were in a grave underneath and God came for you and looked for you and dug you out? You know, maybe you're a brother or sister in Christ and you found yourself in a, in a very hard season. You can be honest with God about that. And you can think, and I'll ask you to reflect on yourselves. What about the nature of God that you find yourself wrestling with? What are you wrestling with in this season? Is it the circumstances you found yourself in? Maybe life didn't pan out the way you thought it would. Maybe it's suffering or pain in your own life or someone next to you. God invites you to bring those things to him. Eve let those thoughts sit and fester and we see where that led. Bring them to the Lord. Bring them. You see, God didn't stop loving or caring for you when you came to his son. He wasn't like, okay, take his punch out of hell. It's like, no, no, no. He is with you then and he is with you now. He is not indifferent to what you're going through. He is not indifferent to your pain, to your suffering, to your persecution. God sees you and he cares for you. He who began a good work will bring that to completion. You know, I came across a story this week that I'll share for you guys when I was preparing for this message. Before I share, anyone in here ever complete like a triathlon before? One, Kim, I see. Anybody else? Two, three, four. 
oh, a lot of y'all, superhuman people out here. Um, triathlons are a beast. They take a lot of training. They take a lot of endurance and a lot of strength. There are, there are three main events. You have swimming, you have cycling, and also you have running as well. And typically, people have to get into an, a, an enormous amount of shape even to be able to compete, let alone complete that. Well, there is one man who is in the um, Triathlon Hall of Fame. His name is, his name is Rick. But the thing about Rick is he has cerebral palsy. He can't even walk. The question is, how can a man, let alone complete the event, can't even walk, how does he become or be entered to the Hall of Fame? How does this man who was born with an umbilical cord at birth, out of the wound disabled, how is it that he could become or enter the Hall of Fame in such an arduous task? The answer his father, his father, Rick's father's name is Dick, and he wanted his son to experience life. He wanted to give and to do for his son what his son only dreamed and imagined could be possible. So at these events, they have countless triathlons underneath their belt. When his father is swimming, ties a rope around his waist, he drags his son along in a buoy. You know, when, he's, when, they're, when they're running or when they're cycling, it's his father that's physically bringing him along. But the credit of that is due to Rick as well. You see, it costs the father everything, not only training for a triathlon for himself, but to be able to be in a good enough shape that he could bring his son to the finish line. And when I see that story, I think about the love and the power of a good father, how he could do things for you that you could never do in and of yourself. And with that brings us to the conclusion of our service. You know, every single week we, we celebrate communion. And if you don't have communion, there are a couple boxes on the side, uh, side of the aisle there, feel free, to, feel free to grab that. Jesus, at the night he was betrayed, broke a piece of bread and said, this is, broke a loaf of bread, said, this is my body that has been broken for you. He says, take, remember, take and eat. So I would encourage you guys, take the bread and eat. And in his chalice, it's a cup of wine, so this is my blood, blood of the new covenant poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. You know, the beautiful thing is, in a garden, Genesis depicts that Eve saw that fruit and she took and she ate and it brought death. And it's beautiful when we see Christ's restoration he uses that same imagery, but he restores this when he says, take and eat. Let me pray for us. I'm Kevin Jameson, lead pastor at Sojourn East. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support the ministry of Sojourn East, visit sojournchurch.com east.